Chapter 13 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 13 Themes and Stories on the Stage. 1. In olden fairy tales, we read of many honorable souls condemned to dwell in cramped and crooked bodies, and we also read of many goodly bodies that walk the world untenanted by any soul. These fables lay a finger on one of the monstrous ironies of life. It would seem to our finite minds that if the creative spirit of the universe were at all reasonable in its workings, it would clothe a fine soul with a fair body and use a foul body as a tenement of an evil soul, but this harmony is seldom to be seen in actual creation. The wicked Mary Stuart looks the loveliest of women. The serene, sagacious Socrates wears a funny face, and very few people enjoy, like John Keats, the privilege of looking like themselves. Seldom does the soul fit the body, or the body fit the soul, and this might almost be imagined as a reason for that dissociation known as death. What is true of human beings is also true of works of art. For any genuine work of art, because it is a living thing, may be imagined to have a body and a soul. Sometimes, as in the case of the poems of Walt Whitman or the paintings of El Greco, the soul is finer than the body. Sometimes, as in the case of the paintings of Andrea del Sarto or the poems of Poe, the body is fairer than the soul. But very rarely are the two of equal beauty, as in the supreme poem of Dante, and the supreme painting of Leonardo. The soul of a play is its theme, and the body of a play is its story. A play may have a great theme and an inadequate story, or an interesting story and scarcely any theme at all. It may be a noble-minded hunchback or a shallow-pated Prince Charming, but only a few great plays reveal profound, important themes beneath the lineaments of engaging and enthralling stories. By the theme of a play is meant some principle or truth of human life, such a truth as might be formulated critically in an abstract and general proposition, which the dramatist contrives to convey concretely to his auditors through the particular medium of a story. Thus, the theme of ghosts is that the sins of the father are visited on the children, and the theme of the pigeon is that wild spirits and the tame spirits of the world can never understand each other. Granted a good theme, a playwright may invent a dozen or a hundred stories to embody it, but the final merit of his work will depend largely on whether or not he has succeeded in selecting a story that is, at all points, worthy of his theme. As an instance of the desired harmony between the two, we may point to A Doll's House, which succeeds in illustrating Whitman's maxim that the soul is not more than the body, and the body is not more than the soul. The theme of this modern tragedy was thus formulated by Ibsen in a note penciled on the back of an envelope in Rome on October 19, 1878. There are two kinds of spiritual law, two kinds of conscience, one in man and another, altogether different, in women. They do not understand each other, but in practical life the woman is judged by man's law as though she were not a woman but a man. A woman cannot be herself in the society of the present day which is an exclusively masculine society, with laws framed by men 
and with a judicial system that judges feminine conduct from a masculine point of view. This thesis is the soul of a doll's house. Its body is merely a story setting forth an instance of the commonplace crime of forgery. Yet this instance is so skillfully selected that the story develops naturally and inevitably to that astounding final dialogue which incorporates the essence of the theme and seems not of an age but of all time. Here is a story that is eminently adequate to the occasion that call it forth, and yet it is conceivable that Ibsen might have invented an entirely different narrative to carry and deliver the message of his drama. That the playwright's range of possible invention is almost limitless is proved by the fact that the same theme has often served as the basis of several great plays by different authors whose stories have shown no obvious resemblance to each other. Thus, the theme of Macbeth is that vaulting ambition which o'erleaps itself will fall on the other side, and this is also the theme of The Master Builder, which tells a very different story. Likewise, Hamlet and Lagnol, which are unlike in narrative details, are identical in themes, the essential basis of each being the failure of a man of poetic and reflective temperament to cope with circumstances that demand a man of action. In view of the wide range of possible invention, it is surprising that so many of our playwrights fail to devise stories that are worthy to incorporate their themes. No other source of failure in the theatre comes more often to the fore. An instance of this inadequacy is offered by the recent play called Milestones, by Messrs. Arnold Bennett and Edward Koblar. The soul of this piece is a great theme, namely, that crabbed age and youth cannot live together, because youth is always radical and forward-looking, and age is always backward-looking and conservative but its body is merely a sedentary, unimportant story that deals with such a minor problem as whether ships should be built of wood or iron or steel, and such an ordinary question as who will ultimately marry whom. And because of the inadequacy of its narrative, the critic who envisages the theme of milestones must regard the finished fabric as less impressive than the authors should have made it. Sometimes, but more rarely, the contrary fault may be exhibited in the theatre. There is a type of play that commands attention by its cleverness of plot, and its deft manipulation of suspense and of surprise, without revealing any central or essential theme or conveying any general truth of life for the auditor to add to his experience. Such a play may succeed for the moment, but it is not likely to live in after years, for, to return to our former statement, a work of art is like a human being, and nothing can survive of either but the soul. As Browning remarked, with sardonic truthfulness, the soul, doubtless, is immortal, where a soul can be discerned. Generations breathe and eat and laugh and love and die, but only those few men remain immortal who leave their souls behind them. If a man should say, not merely with his mouth, but with the entire mood and meaning of his living, beauty is truth, truth beauty, or thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, the world must evermore remember the life of which this message was the theme but it easily forgets the million men whose inexpressive dust returns to dust. So it is with plays. Those that succeed in saying something have earned an opportunity to live, but those that say nothing must suffer, sooner or later, the iniquity of oblivion. A good story is necessary in order that a play may obtain an immediate success, but a great theme is necessary in order that it may require the attention of posterity. 2. It would not be possible for anybody to devise an utterly new story for a play. The dramatic material in life is limited. According to certain critics, the number of different dramatic situations is a little more than thirty, 
according to others it is a little less than twenty but all are agreed that the number is extremely small novelty in the drama can therefore be obtained not by the discovery of new materials but only by the invention of new combinations of materials that are as old as man yet the invention of new combinations affords ample scope for the exercise of ingenuity the range of imaginable numbers is not limited by the fact that all may be recorded with the ten digits of the arabic notation nor does the world in springtime look monotonous in color because every apparent tint may be regarded as exhibiting a permutation of red and blue and yellow the twenty or thirty standard situations may be shuffled and dealt into innumerable plots each of which is new though all of its component parts are old a play appeals in two ways to an audience in so far as its component situations are traditional it calls forth the response of recognition and in so far as its compound plot is novel it stimulates the reaction of surprise in considering these two appeals one must remember always that the emotion of recognition is more profound and therefore more enjoyable than the titillation of surprise the best part of our enjoyment in the theatre arises not from vainly wondering what will happen but from eagerly wanting some specific thing to happen and having our want fulfilled a noticeable novelty even in the combination of materials that in themselves are thoroughly familiar is therefore not always to be praised as a merit in a play but may often be regarded as a fault but if originality of subject matter is impossible and if originality of arrangement is often undesirable why should we care to see new plays instead of old why should we see the liars which treats the same theme as le misanthrope the answer seems a paradox but undeniably our enjoyment arises from the fact that the very antiquity of the author's materials emphasizes his originality of mind any club member can bear witness that the same anecdote may seem dull if told by one narrator and highly humorous if recounted by another in the theatre the ultimate significance of any story is proportional to the importance of the mind through which it passes to the audience the trial of shylock and the subterfuge by which portia confutes him would seem silly stuff indeed if it were told us by a child of ten but it does not seem silly as told to us by shakespeare it is the author's attitude of mind toward his material the intelligence with which he regards it the mood that it awakens in him that renders his work distinct from that of any other author who has used the same material and stamps it an original creation it is a significant fact that the three greatest dramatists of the world sophocles shakespeare and moliere eschewed the invention of new narrative and exercised their high originality of mind in the treatment of stories with which their public had been long familiar the critic therefore should never condemn a playwright because his story is old but he may reasonably expect the author to illuminate the narrative with ideas and moods that shall be new because they are essentially his own i take my own where i find it said moliere and whatever he took he made his own by the divine right of thinking more deeply about it than the man from whom he took it sir arthur pinero in the thunderbolt employed the stale old story of the stolen will but he set it forth with a soundness of sense and a poignancy of sensibility that made it seem original and new any dramatic story belongs ultimately not to the man who used it first nor even to the man who used it last but to the man who has used it best in reviewing new plays with old stories the critic should inquire whether or not the author has afforded new illumination to the ancient drift of narrative if so he has really made the traditional material his own but otherwise he has merely wasted attention by a meaningless repetition End of chapter thirteen
Recording by Todd.